Vroom, vroom. Here's your primer on Beef Boys, Baseball's End, Roger Angel, and Super Pretzels, Williams Astadio, and Mike Trout Hypotheticals. Waiting for the perfect bat from a volcanic eruption. Ladies and gentlemen, the Effectively Wild Introduction. Hello and welcome to episode 2105 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, not joined today by Meg Rowley, who is still on the road and dealing with uncooperative Wi-Fi. But I am joined by two great guests in her stead, Hannah Kaiser and Zach Kreiser. Kaiser and Kreiser, Kreiser and yes, Kaiser. Yeah, we've encountered <laughs> yep. that before. I'm sure you have. Formerly of Yahoo Sports and the late lamented Bandwagon podcast. Hello. Welcome. This is a nice little reunion we've engineered here. Yeah, we really appreciate you engineering an on-mic reunion. As we were just telling you, we reunion in person occasionally. We were at dinner when you asked us to do this. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we've talked baseball with each other, but no one else has gotten to hear it for a few weeks or I guess a couple months now. If a podcaster podcasts in person, does it make a sound? I mean, if, if there's, there's no mic, if no one's recording, does that even count? It could be personally satisfying, but no audio. You're not performing for anyone. It's uh, entirely authentic. Yeah, other than like the people sitting at the bar at a specific <laughs> Brooklyn restaurant last night, no one has any idea what we think about baseball right now. And yes. Respective significant yeah, others. Yeah, they, they were there. They know too. Yeah, they probably know more than they want to if they're anything <laughs> like mine. But um, as people may know, Yahoo Sports uh, earlier this month laid off all of its MLB writers. So that's not nice and not fun. It's uh, something that. We're all kind of used to maybe when we work in media and also when we work in tech adjacent media, you're kind of the center of two layoff heavy industries, which is not always the most fun place to be. You both do great work individually and together. So I've missed being able to read and hear you lately. And I hope that we'll be able to read and hear you somewhere else soon, whether together or apart. Oh, gosh, this podcast was worth it already just to have someone say that. (laughs) Thank you so much. Much, ben. <laughs> of course. Appreciate that. Has your experience of free agency so far been anything like Joey Vados, who tweeted this week that being a free agent is like that scene from Gravity where Sandra Bullock detaches from the Explorer. You're all alone. No one is answering your calls and you don't know if you'll get back to base. Your only hope is George Clooney saving you. Is that how you would have put it? Uh, no, I think my experience <laughs> of free agency has been less existential than Joey Vados. Uh <laughs> But I will say that getting laid off is a great way to make people say nice things about you for about six hours. That is uh, true. Yeah. And I didn't mind that. You know, that, that was that was nice. But no, I don't feel like I'm in space or anything. <laughs> and I certainly don't expect George Clooney to save me. My experience has been completely existential, which is a, a perfect division between Zach and I's personalities <laughs> in many ways. I have been pleasantly surprised both at how people do say very nice things about you mm-hmm. when you get laid off, but also stuff like this podcast. I've hosted some foul territory that like rogue YouTube show that all the players mm-hmm. uh, appear on and, and I still do TV stuff. So it's, I've said to many people that like, while it's the off season, it doesn't, I was like, to me, it feels like I'm doing just as much thinking and talking about baseball as ever, but with fewer paychecks on the horizon. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. A little less financial security than Joey Votto, I would yes. imagine. <laughs> I appreciate everyone who uh, continues to ask me to talk about baseball, even 
despite not having a day job. Uh, Zach knows the bed, bed. You do not. And you would actually probably find this story delightful. I was on BBC radio twice talking about <laughs> Shohei Otani. <laughs> and they know delightfully little. They know they were like, their questions included, how do you pronounce his name? Yep. What does he do? Mm-hmm. What's he like as a person? Is he also good at defense? Yeah. <laughs> I think he is, but we haven't yes. seen it so much. I mean, as a pitcher, he is. I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much. I was like, there's a lot of backstory there. I say this <laughs> not in any way to mock the people of BBC, who I really appreciated. It was it was very interesting. That was like one of the most interesting things I've done yeah. since I got laid off, I guess. Just because I was sort of like, well, then why do you even care? But I guess it's the headline of biggest sports contract ever. They had reasonably a lot of questions. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure you got into the time value of money and what the actual, you know, current day value of that. I'm sure the BBC yeah. audience was uh, fascinated by the, the details, the nitty gritty of Otani's contract. Exactly. No. <laughs> Needing to lower the CBT hit while still. Yes. What, what interest rates are we talking about here? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have also been on the BBC to talk about baseball and the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which, I mean, they do have baseball in Canada, at least a little bit more than than in England, though they have it there too. But it is a different audience and you kind of have to calibrate the way that you talk about things. So me on Effectively Wild, a little bit different from me on the CBC or the BBC, kind of have to <laughs> remember that I don't have my Fangraphs hat on. I hope that people are answering your calls, at least if they are letting Joey Vados go to voicemail. Hopefully they're placing calls because uh, they should. Don't be a miser. Hire Kaiser and Kreiser. That's my holiday message to everyone. So I have brought you on today because we have kind of an end of the year tradition here at Effectively Wild. We talk about stories that we didn't talk about all year, stories we missed. We did, I don't know, 150 something episodes and I don't know how many hours. So you would think that there would not be one corner of baseball that we did not explore. But somehow every year there's something we miss. And, you know, when you cover baseball from a national perspective, even if you're getting in deep, there are things that you just aren't aware of or don't have time to talk about that people know about their team because they're watching that team and they're listening to the broadcast every day. And it just doesn't quite permeate the national consciousness. And so at the end of the year, we put out a call to our listeners and say, what did we not talk about about your team this year? And listeners send in ideas. They can be anything. They can be some kind of statistical quirk or fun fact or some individual season or some strange game or some funny or heartwarming off the field story. In most cases, I wasn't even aware of these things, but we just try to catch up with everything before the year is over. I guess Meg still will have missed these stories because she's not here today, but this is perfect for you because you get to just react to these stories and you didn't even miss them the first time. I mean, you may have, but you could just say, oh yeah, we talked about that on the bandwagon. Where were you on Effectively Wild with this one? But I just uh, hope that you'll enjoy being regaled with some of these stories and you can let me know whether you were aware of them. We love a podcast with no prep. So. Yeah, that was that was my favorite part of this request. We like, no prep required. Yep. We should we should make it very very clear. We have no idea what you're about. No, yeah, not a clue. Us. 
Nope. I had Facebook threads. I had Discord prompts. These submissions are coming in from everywhere. And yeah, I said, just show up and I will read you some stuff. So no prep for you. Probably the most prep that I do for an Effectively Wild all year long because I have a massive gnarly spreadsheet with many, many links and 100 tabs open that I will be furiously clicking through as I explain these things. So Meg and I will have to catch up on some of the minor news and transactions that we've missed over the past week. But too much to get to today. That can wait for 2024, but this cannot because if we wait till 2024, we will have missed it in 2023. We'll just go in alphabetical order here, starting with the Arizona Diamondbacks. So alphabetical order in terms of the city name. The Diamondback story, which kind of doubles as an angel story, is that Dominic Fletcher and David Fletcher played each other. They are brothers. Dominic played for the Diamondbacks. David has played for the Angels, although he will not anymore. And they faced off for the first time at the major league level, which is just kind of fun and quirky, but the added dimension that also makes it sad and very Field of Dreams and Fathers and Sons-ish is that their father, Tim, had died earlier that month at 60 years old. This was in June, June 30th, they faced off for the first time in a major league game. So it was bittersweet because I'm sure they were both thinking dad would have loved to see this. It would have been nice if he had been around to see this. They said, Dominic Fletcher, this would have been one of his proudest moments. Every night he turned on the TV and had both of our games going on simultaneously to be able to be here and watch would have been one of his favorite things, which is heartbreaking, (laughs) but... Also kind of nice that that happened and they got to cross paths and celebrate in some way while they were mourning on a baseball field. So baseball, fathers and sons, heartwarming, but also tragic. What could be more baseball than that? Yeah, I did not realize that their their dad had died. I, I knew that they were both in the majors and I think Dominic actually debuted this year. So I was just looking to see if he had debuted before their dad passed away. And it looks like he did. So at least mm-hmm. he, he got the major league debut uh, out of the way while his, while his dad was there to see it. Uh, yeah. so, so that's good. I, I wanted to make sure he got the debut and that would have been yes. more sad if he never got to see him in the majors. Right. And this happened, I think this was in Anaheim, and they grew up in Orange, California. They played together in high school, 10 miles from Angel Stadium, and they had cross paths before in the minors. They had played against each other, and they also both played for Italy in the WBC because their mother is from Italy. So I guess their dad got to see them play on that team, at least. But despite the circumstances, uh, hopefully that brought them some sort of solace. Sad, but also sort of sweet. I I knew absolutely nothing about this. So I Mm -hmm. went to Dominic Fletcher's Instagram. And he's got a great slideshow of pictures of him and his dad doing baseball things over the years. Oh, which I highly recommend just because I enjoy pictures of tiny children wearing baseball hats that cannot be made small enough for their heads. So if you too enjoy that, <laughs> yeah, highly recommend. Great genre. Okay. Moving along, the Atlanta Braves. So I've got a few submissions here. I guess the main one would be that Charlie Culberson converted to pitching. Were you aware of this? Did he convert to pitching or did he just never get to play otherwise? Well, so yes, that happened too. (laughs) And that we did talk about on Effectively Wild. So he was on Atlanta's Major League roster for quite a long time and just was never getting into a game. He was just sort of like in a ceremonial honorary position, basically, on the Braves' active roster. And he got into 
one game, right? And and had one plate appearance. And I think he got a hit, if I'm remembering right. And that was it. Like the Braves have had multiple players that they just kind of carry as mascots in recent seasons. And Culberson was that guy. But his stint in the majors where he was just riding the pine actually interrupted his conversion to pitching, which was his plan, which I knew nothing about. He had pitched in the majors several times, I think, with some success, just like as a position player pitcher. And maybe that gave him some false confidence about how good he was as a pitcher. I don't know. I don't want to denigrate his, his pitching performance. But lifetime in the majors, he's pitched eight games, seven and a third innings, and he's given up only one run, which sounds pretty good, except for the fact that he's only struck out one batter and he walked three. So we might say not so sustainable, but evidently thinks it's sustainable because this is his career path now. And he was pitching in AAA with the Gwinnett Stripers and kind of got interrupted because he kept getting called up to Atlanta to not play. But this was the plan. Like in April, he's like, yeah, I'm I'm just going to be a pitcher now. So I don't know how I missed this, but I completely did. Charlie Culberson, now a pitcher. So in AAA, across the season, he got in four games. He threw three and two-thirds innings. He struck out five. All right. Uh, He allowed eight hits and five runs, only two of which were earned. I don't know exactly how that happened. And he walked two. So maybe he was like the extra innings specialist in the minors. Yeah, he he did say that he's open to being a two-way player, which is ambitious. So it's not a a full conversion, like he's never going to play another position again. But he's just trying to broaden his skill set, I suppose, just to trying to make himself as attractive to as many potential employers as possible so that people will return his calls as a free agent. But yeah, I was just not aware that this was happening. So I wish him well. We talked about Charlie Culberson a, a surprising number of times on the podcast this year. But none of the times was about the fact that he was trying to make it as a pitcher now. I think this is, with all due respect to the Atlanta Media Corps, they let someone down because if this is, you're right. I can't believe that none of the three of us knew that Charlie Culberson <laughs> was trying to be a pitcher. Mm-hmm. While, right, like I'm I'm very aware of Charlie Culberson's existence. Yeah, and mostly the fact that he looks like Dansby Swanson. Like yeah, we've covered yes. that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm equally surprised to learn that he wasn't on the Braves the past two seasons as I am to learn that he was taking up pitching. I just always think of him as being on the Braves. He had a 443 OPS plus this year, which I'm trying to figure out what exactly that calculation is based on. Because you're right, he had one at-bat and he got one hit in that yeah, at-bat. That's it. <laughs> that's the whole thing. Yep, that's so, it. <laughs> but 443 is such a specific number. Where is that coming from? I mean, it's I uh, where two, the average was. 2,000 OPS, right? <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> I got to say, this is a first-world problem for the Atlanta Braves of just like, we can put our shortstop who isn't actually going to play in AAA and just let him pitch because we don't even need this AAA roster spot to develop pitchers. Charlie Culberson can pitch. <laughs> I mean, yeah, also a first world problem that they had so many things to write about that they didn't need to mention Charlie Culberson. I mean, I remember when Anthony Ghost was converting to pitching, yeah. it was yeah. like the only thing anyone talked about. Right. For, I think Cleveland. 
Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, was he with Toronto for a while too? Yeah, I I was well aware of the ghost conversion, but somehow this escaped my notice. Maybe it's us. Maybe it's no one else's fault but ours. I'm I'm just thrilled to learn that at the age of 34, people still think that they have a whole new chapter of yeah, their careers that's, ahead that's of them. That's inspirational, right? Yeah. As a only 33 year old, this is very <laughs> heartening to me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I've got, I could learn an entirely new skill. Have you tried pitching? Actually, she has. Yes, I guess that's true. (laughs) Okay. Well, that was one submission. That was from Mary Beth, I believe. The the Fletcher submission was from Levi. Also got some other ideas for Atlanta from Ezra and Paul. Some people mentioned Ronald Acuna Jr.'s wedding, which probably was fairly big news, although we didn't talk about it. We certainly talked about Acuna a ton, but he got married just hours before a game because his fiance, she was going to have to leave the country because of a visa and she would have had to go back with their two children and then they wouldn't be allowed back in the U.S. for a few months and then they would have missed out on a postseason run and the end of his historic season and everything. So they just got hitched to solve that problem so that his fiance and then wife could stay and uh, keep him company. He wanted his family close to them, understandably. So he had a nice ceremony on top of all the other personal milestones and professional milestones that he accomplished this year. Also got married right in the middle of all of that. And his wife, I I think, wore his trademark uh, pendant at the ceremony, his number 13, and then subsequently got a 4070 tattoo to commemorate. <laughs> his, I did not know that part. Yeah, that's love, I guess. If you're going to get your husband's uh, statistical milestones tattooed on your person, that's one way to express it. So, yeah, I don't know that I would uh, do that if my wife went 4070. I'm not sure I would get a tattoo. I'd be very proud of her, but I don't know that I would memorialize it in quite that way. What if he goes 5080 this year? I know. Do you, I guess you can get tattoos removed. People do that quite often these days. So can you just like cross it out and tattoo 5080 over it? I don't know. They'll have to figure that out. Other nominations for the Braves. One is that they had a couple days where they just gave their regular broadcasters the day off and had an all Hall of Famers broadcast. So they just had Chipper Jones and John Smoltz and Tom Glavin do the calls for those days, except that Jeff Rancourt was also there, who is notably not a Hall of Famer, you know, famous Atlanta Brave, but not quite as accomplished as a player. And they kind of trolled him on at least one of those broadcasts because all of the other guys wore their Hall of Fame jackets which is a thing, I guess. It's it's not it's like a master's jacket or something if you're Just in the, the Hall of Fame. Less famous, right? Thing. <laughs> so they all wear their Hall of Fame jackets, and and Frenchie was left out because he doesn't have one. But he's part of the regular broadcasting crew, so they they let one guy, one other former player, on. So that's that's interesting. I mean, Hannah, you've done lots of baseball TV broadcasting in the past few years, so I I say make room for more media members, if anything, but also. Kind of fun just to have like a, a laid back, I guess it's like a Manning cast inspired sort of thing where it's just, you know, have some players jawing. And of course, you know, those players are broadcasters. I mean, John Smoltz, you know, we, we can't find a baseball broadcast John Smoltz isn't on, right? So it's not like they were complete uh, neophytes here. 
See, Ben, that's what's wrong with this industry is everybody wants something to be Manning cast as that. <laughs> that exact description is why we are out of work. No, that's not exactly true. But it's, <laughs> everyone is like, oh, yeah, it'll be like the Manning cast. We'll just get some famous athletes to do your job. Yeah, we'll just get A-Rod and Michael K hanging out. That's what everyone wants to hear somehow. Okay. And the last idea for the Braves was that Forrest Wall debuted for the Braves this year. Forest, forest people make fun of my pronunciation of forest. I don't know if that's a New York thing or what. I say forest, but Forest Wall, who is a former first rounder from the Rockies in the 2014 draft, and he was in the minors for nine years, just bouncing around, finally made it to the majors with Atlanta this year, got into 15 games, 15 plate appearances, and he had a 264 OPS plus. So not quite Culberson-esque, but not far from it. As if the Braves didn't have enough good hitters. Like even the guys who got like a plate appearance here or there had like 1,000, 2,000 OPS pluses. But he actually made the postseason roster because, you know, he was uh, speedy and he could do various things and play various positions. So nice breakthrough for him after being a highly touted prospect and then a minor league journeyman. I like that all of the Braves stories were like, can you believe how many Hall of Famers they have and how many <laughs> great players and Ronald Acuna Jr. could barely make time for all of his accomplishments? <laughs> the, yep. the wedding is the one we did cover the wedding yes, on the bandwagon, I will say. Okay. That one we yes. got, but the rest of them very much know. Yes. All right. Baltimore Orioles. So this one I was aware of. I don't know if we actually talked about it. Some of these things we may have had a passing reference to on one podcast. It's hard to remember all the things that we've said. Cedric Mullins met AJ Rodriguez, who is a well-known streamer, Twitch streamer, specifically with MLB The Show. And he has a very viral clip from a few years ago where Cedric Mullins, the show version, the digital polygonal version of Cedric Mullins, robbed a home run. And AJ Rodriguez went on a little rant about how he's always getting robbed and thwarted by digital Cedric Mullins. And he said, I can't escape him, which became kind of a, a catchphrase and something that Orioles social media will use when Cedric Mullins does something good. So they had interacted from afar before. I think Mullins had sent Rodriguez, who, who goes by Little Man 17 when he's streaming. Mullins had sent him a bobblehead, I believe. But they finally met in person because Rodriguez, who's an Angels fan, attended an Orioles fan and they met up and Rodriguez was wearing a WBC jersey that I think was Mullins's and Mullins signed it. And he signed it, you can't escape me or something like that, right? Playing on this viral catchphrase. And it was just a heartwarming, you know, people meeting in real life after interacting in an interesting way online. The subplot to the Mullins meeting Rodriguez game was that Zach Hampel got involved. Oh, no. Which is, yeah, that's usually <laughs> the appropriate reaction when Zach Hampel gets involved. So Mullins homered in that game. And Zach Hampel caught it because, of course, he did, right? Famous fly catcher, Zach Hampel. And people prevailed upon Hampel to give the ball to Rodriguez, which would have been sweet and appropriate, right? And he declined. He refused. And he was caught on camera saying, I'm the Mullins guy tonight. So really leaning into the, the trollishness that Zach Hampel is known for, fairly or unfairly. And he got roasted for that, obviously. 
A week later, Hample caught another Mullins home run ball, which spread the wealth, like let some other people catch some balls now and then. But then he bowed to the public pressure and he did offer that ball to Rodriguez. I'm not sure what the resolution of that was, whether Rodriguez accepted or not, but he did repent and change his ways when he got another Mullins home run ball sent his way. I did not think as you were telling this story that the famous streamer was not going to be the person I related to the least by the end of the story. No. I thought, whatever, I don't care about that guy. And then Zach Hample entered the picture and I was like, I don't care about him even more. <laughs> yeah, the streamer is the sympathetic person in this story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's ending. only one Twitch-related baseball incident I could say I'm actually familiar with, and that involved Blake Snell. So yes. uh, this was news yes. to me. <laughs> yeah. I regularly thought during the 2020 season that Blake Snell was remarkably good at doing Zoom press conferences post-game. I, he, mm. I don't know why that came up more than once, but I distinctly remember thinking, like, he's significantly better at doing these press conferences over Zoom than every other baseball player. <laughs> and I think that's a credit to his time spent doing Twitch streaming. He's very yeah, comfortable so. in front of a screen. So yeah, maybe more be. players should take that up. Yeah. Xavier Edwards, who is the prospect Blake Snell called the slapdick prospect in that stream that you're referring to, he made his major league debut this year for the Miami Marlins, which I wish I had known an hour ago or realized an hour ago when I was desperately searching for a Marlins story. (laughs) (laughs) They were the one team that I was like, anyone? Bueller? Marlins story that does not involve Luisa Rice? Please, someone? Eventually, we got one. But Xavier Edwards, not such a slapdick prospect. After all, a bona fide big leaker. Next team, Boston Red Sox. So this one, we're going from lighthearted to a little more serious, but still heartening. So something that I I think we've all noted and uh, have celebrated perhaps over the past few years is professional athletes and specifically baseball players, because we cover baseball, being more open about mental health and some of the struggles that they've gone through and uh, trying to set an example and say, hey, we're professional athletes, but uh, we have feelings too. And sometimes we struggle with depression and anxiety and everything else that people who are not professional baseball players struggle with. So the Red Sox had a couple such examples this year. One was Jaron Duran, who had a rough rookie season right in 2022. I guess that was his second major league season. You know, didn't hit in his first couple seasons in the big leagues, had some defensive gaffes, etc., and got down on himself. And he really had a, a big comeback successful season for the Red Sox this year. He was uh, one of their most valuable players. And he talked about how he sort of reset and changed his mental approach uh, over the offseason leading into this year. But he also went through a slump at one point in 2023 and started to suffer from the same negative feelings and, you know, posted about it. And the team talked to him and Alex Cora talked to him. He's been pretty vocal about opening up about these things and saying, hey, it's okay to not only feel this way, but also vocalize those feelings. And similarly, a Red Sox minor leaguer went through sort of the same thing. Blaze Jordan, great baseball name. I don't know if Blaze is his given name. One of you can tell me perhaps, but he went through something similar and and he tweeted about this also and, and put that message out there. This was in October. He captioned the 
this. Uh, it was finally time to share my story dealing with anxiety and depression after seeing so many stories about it. And I know as an athlete, it can be especially hard dealing with these things. You are not alone. He talked about how he dealt with this, especially earlier in his career and a highly touted prospect and was pressing and was going through all those difficulties. So, you know, it's part of a larger movement, right? And I guess we even saw that in some cases this year with professional baseball players going on the injured list with mental health issues, right? Like not inventing some phantom shoulder injury or anything, but just saying, you know, anxiety, depression, whatever it was, and and not trying to camouflage that with something more macho, right? So the Red Sox stand out here, but I think this happened with a lot of teams and a lot of players and probably a lot of sports. I believe his name is, in fact, Blaze. Blaze. Wow. I, I have a, yeah, I have an MLB.com interview from when he was drafted and We'll get back to the serious part in a second. But uh, they said, how did you get the name Blaze? That's not one you hear every day. And he, he's 17 at this point. He says, yeah. my parents just kind of read it out of a magazine. They were going to name me something else before that. And then they just went with it from there. And MLB.com says, so it's not even a nickname? Your official first name is Blaze? And he says, that's my official name. It's on wow. my birth certificate and everything. Well, that settles that. <laughs> okay, wow. that's pretty awesome. I, I like that, not stressing the name. You know, I mean, hopefully don't give your kid a name that's like going to haunt them forever. In this case, it's it's kind of cool, especially if you're like a speedy athlete. But I like the just, you know what? I read that name. It spoke to me. And you are now named Blaze forever. Is he speedy, though? He doesn't have the build necessarily of a speedy. Yeah, well, speedy relative to He's the average person. Us. Yes, <laughs> yeah. let's, let's say that at least. Yeah. Okay, the Chicago Cubs. So we got a lot of submissions for the Chicago Cubs from Ralph and Dave and others. Some people talked about Seiya Suzuki's resurgence and how, you know, he started slow and finished incredibly fast and hot. He was great. And he actually took a, a mental health break, too. The team gave him one, like sat him down for a while so that he could sort of reset. And in his case, at least that really worked. And he came back and was just, you know, torrid stretch down the stretch. I guess I just said stretch twice, but he was really great. And that to me, like, I don't know if that would work for me, like the mental break. Maybe I, I just kind of like working a lot. But also, I feel like if I were sort of benched in a very visible way, that that might compound my problems personally. Like if I were already pressing and then it's like, OK, I'm just going to not play for a while here. Maybe when you get to that point where you can think of nothing else but how you're struggling and, and you're coming up empty, that it's good to just completely reset and detach for a while. And maybe he made some mechanical tweaks, too. He ended up having a really strong sophomore season, and that was one reason why. So I yeah, wanted to mention he, that. He actually, uh, he also, I will say, as a, an added reason that this might be stressful, he has, as a lot of the prominent Japanese players do, kind of a media contingent that follows the Cubs right. around. I saw the Cubs when he was on his mental health that's, break was, or whatever. I was going to say, we were, we were around the team then, Yeah, right? I was double-checking that that's when he was It was the press conferences with the manager were just like six questions about how close he was to returning, which would really stress me out if I were him. Yeah, so maybe it's better to just say, I'm on an indefinite leave for now and I'll be back when I'm back, right? But he ended up having a great season overall couple others to shout out. Nico Horner 
stole 42 bases, which is impressive on its own, but actually 43 bases. I said 42 because 42 was his career stolen base total at all levels of professional baseball entering 2023. And he then stole 43 bases in 2023 alone. So if you want to talk about players who took advantage of the new rules, Nico Horner should probably be on that list. Combined 345 games in the minors and the majors prior to 2023, stole 42 bags. 150 games in 2023, stole 43. However, my highlight for the Cubs is the season of Miguel Amaya, who was a rookie catcher for the Cubs. There are a couple notable things about Miguel Amaya. One is that he attempted to frame a pitch that bounced. So, uh, and it bounced, you know, into the center of the strike zone. And he really framed it. Like he held it there for a while as if he thought he might actually get that call. He did not get that call. It reminded me of, you know, sometimes in the Little League World Series, you'll see a kid try to frame a pitch that's like, three feet outside and it's amusing. Sometimes it even works at that level, but this is that same sort of energy. Just like, Hey, why not? My glove is there. I might as well hold it and see if the umpire was paying attention. Are you aware of all of the Travis Darno instances of this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not Darno the first time. All the time. And it is, I had at some point made a, a Twitter thread of Travis Darno <laughs> framing pitches that were yeah. so far. And I, 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 you know what? No offense to Travis Darnell, but I think this guy did it better. No, yeah. I mean, if you somehow didn't notice that it bounced, <laughs> then you would say, well, how is that not a strike, right? I mean, umpires have to blink at least right. once. An umpire has to blink yeah. during the flight of a pitch. And if you blink and then look down and see that, you probably call it a strike. That would be embarrassing. I wouldn't be surprised if that's happened at some point at some level of baseball. But you, you know what? This is. I need to find out an answer to this thing that I'm about to present to you, which is in the world of robo zones, Mm. could a ball bounce early enough and then travel through the zone (laughs) and get counted? Because you're right, this pitch, I've now watched this clip a thousand times, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't jerk it into the zone. Like, it's not like he he doesn't grab it off the ground and try to frame it. It bounces Mm -hmm. into the middle of the zone, and that's where he frames the pitch, and so now I am curious if that were to happen with a robo zone because it appears to bounce before the plate, would that have counted as a strike? The new money ball is cricket bowlers. Yes. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, StatCast tracks the entire flight of the pitch, right? So it, in theory, it should know that it bounced. But I, I guess you'd have to like make sure that you programmed it to actually make sure that it was looking at the entire flight and not just where the pitch ended up, right? Because if, well, because if it were, yeah, if it were just looking at where it crossed the plate without factoring in the flight of the ball then you very well could end up with an erroneous strike call there. I believe that the part of the sort of consternation around the RoboZone as it stands is where to measure where the ball passes, that that they've changed it from being the front of the plate to the middle of the plate to the whole of the plate, that like whether or not that plane should be two-dimensional or Mm three-dimensional and where it should be measuring is a subject of, conversation and and continued evolution and right it's if they had gone with a two-dimensional plane 
Presumably that would have been called a strike by the RoboZone. <laughs> yeah. Man, we shouldn't have mentioned this. We could have just hoped that MLB never factored this into the calculations <laughs> and we could have gotten a, a bounce pitch strike. I asked historian Richard Hirschberger if there was ever a time during the foundational days of baseball where pitches that hit the ground were eligible to be called strikes. And he said no, because, of course, you could catch balls on a bounce and you could catch foul balls on a bounce like through the 1870s, like in actual National League history, you could do that. It is kind of weird because it's like if you hit a ball that bounces, it still counts. I mean, that happens once in a while. And if you get hit by a ball that bounces, then it still counts as a hit by pitch, right? It's not a ball. So you could say, wouldn't it be consistent to have this be a strike? But then, yeah, we would have just reinvented cricket, I guess. And you would have like bounce pitch specialists, which would be kind of cool. But also it would probably be pretty hard to hit those pitches, I would imagine. Vladimir Guerrero returns (laughs) as baseball's best player. Yeah. Not that he was bad before, but it's like, this is my time. Yeah. (laughs) So that wasn't the only thing that was notable about Miguel Amaya, though. The other thing that was notable about him, and he was apparently a pretty good framer on like actual pitches that were eligible to be framed. So, you know, he was a couple runs above average in 200 plus innings as a catcher. So maybe he was just like, I don't want to get out of my rhythm. You know, like this is my my framing technique. I'll stick with it, even though this ball bounced. Might as well try it. But he also got hit by pitches a whole heck of a lot. So he had... Only 156 plate appearances this year. He got hit by 11 pitches. (laughs) That's a lot in that number of plate appearances. In fact, he led all major leaguers minimum 150 plate appearances in hit by pitch percentage. So he got hit in upwards of 7% of his plate appearances, which uh, led the league. And he actually got hit five times in his first nine games in the big leagues, which at that point, it's like, do I even want to be here? Is this like punitive? Is this what big league baseball is like? I checked to see how unusual that was, like if that had ever happened before, if anyone had ever been hit that many times in their first nine games. And as it turns out, that happened twice this season alone because it happened to Zach Neto also. He got hit five times. Zach Neto of the Angels got hit five times in his first nine games. He went on to get more playing time than Amaya did, so his rate came down. He got hit 16 times in 329 plate appearances. But that was notable because those are the only two times in history, or at least since World War II, which was as far back as I could go in Stathead without it timing out. That has never happened before, and it happened twice This season, which is both weird and random and also, I guess, partly a reflection of the fact that the hit by pitch rate is really high. Now it's like basically never been higher except for the 19th century than it has been in the past uh, couple seasons. But no one was getting plunked as often as Miguel Amaya. That's probably more than you knew that you wanted to know about Miguel Amaya. You now know everything about him. Going to take the over on his OBP next year based on this. (laughs) Yeah. For his sake, I I hope that that part of it comes down because got to be a lot of bruises. Okay. For the White Sox, we talked about aspects of this. This was uh, submitted by Steve. The White Sox just had like the worst week 
of maybe any team potentially. This was in August and this was uh, commemorated in a Sox machine post by Jim Margalis, who noted that in this one week, so on Monday, Crane's Chicago business reported that the White Sox were beginning to explore relocation potentially to sites outside the Chicago city limits, but also potentially outside of Chicago entirely. On Tuesday, Jerry Reinsdorf fired Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn, which I guess if you were a White Sox fan might not have been such bad news. But then on Wednesday, Bob Nightingale reported that Chris Getz was expected to be promoted to take over that job with Dayton Moore maybe being brought in to assist him. On Thursday, nothing notable happened off the field, but the White Sox gave up five home runs in a loss to the worst team in baseball, the Oakland A's. And then on Friday was that weird incident with the shooting with the bullets at the park, right? Which, do you remember what exactly happened there? I forget what the resolution of that story was. I I should know this because my husband is a sports editor at the Associated Press, and Mm -hmm. they were all over this story for some reason and continued to provide updates to me on the the niche machinations around the security investigation and everything. But I don't totally even remember if they decided it came from inside the park like i think they did decide it came from inside the park right that it was it was but weird. Like initially that was also a question that was, yeah that was sort of disputed right and the victim said in september i heard a loud pop i felt an impact on my leg and i looked down and i did not see anything i thought somebody in the crowd had thrown a beer can or something bottled water or something and there was nothing there but then Her leg was bleeding, and then I realized I had been shot. And the the game continued. The the White Sox played on, so as not to cause a panic, is what the White Sox said. But yeah, there was all sorts of speculation and rumors about what actually happened. And the police initially said that the shot was fired inside the ballpark, but then they were considering whether it came from outside the ballpark. I don't know if this is like still an unsolved mystery. Is this still an active case? But yeah, that was that was a weird story. So all of that happened within one week. So White Sox fans were were reeling. I thought the White Sox played on because they didn't know this had happened. Did, did they maybe actually they <laughs> say that they played on so as not to cause a... Were you editorializing? <laughs> no, that, that is that is what I read in this uh, story that I'm reading as we <laughs> are that recording. That's concerning, but... right? They should... They, that they would just be like, in the event of a shooting, we think it's best to just keep yeah, going. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that sounds like a bad, bad approach to that situation. Yeah, the I'm reading an ABC7 Chicago story that says uh, the White Sox decided to let the game continue so as not to cause a panic. I don't know if that is accurate. <laughs> I, hope, I also, hope that that's inaccurate. <laughs> I hope they just didn't notice. They yeah. they felt the need in all of these stories to to make this woman deny that she brought a gun into the ballpark. Right. I guess they thought she shot herself. That was one theory. Yes, right. <laughs> so... This was a weird story all around. It was a a weird season for the White Sox, but all of that was concentrated within one weird and uh, stressful week for White Sox fans. I texted my husband, who's literally Uh just in the other room, but I figured this would be a quieter way of communicating with him. I said, the White Sox shooting, what do we know now? And he said, (laughs) basically nothing. And I said, do we know if the shooting came from in or out of the park? And he said, no. (laughs) 
your, that's your official update from the Associated Press. Okay, yeah. It's an X-File at this point, basically. Cincinnati Reds. One weird thing that happened, these submissions from Josh and Peter, for the first time in history, I suppose, a pitcher gave up more runs than he threw pitches in the game, which was a product of the zombie runner, naturally. Derek Law, pitching for the Reds against Atlanta on April 10th, zero innings pitched, two runs charged, one pitch thrown, right? Because he came in, he inherited the zombie runner, and he gave up a game-winning home run to Sean Murphy on the first pitch that he threw. So two runs on one pitch. So only guy in history who can say that, I suppose, which I hate the zombie runner, but uh, that's kind of fun. I guess if we have to have it, that something weird like that could potentially happen. We haven't had like a, a perfect game loss or any of the, the strange scenarios that could happen with a zombie runner, but that at least happened. However, the main story for the Reds here is the return and subsequent release of Michael Marriott. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's not spelled quite like the hotel. It's uh, only one T. Michael Marriott came up with the Reds in September after going on a, a real odyssey. He had been everywhere and played everywhere because he had initially made the majors. So he just turned 35, but he made the majors like with the Royals and the Phillies 2014, 2015, 2016, and then was not back in the big leagues until this year with the Reds. And in between, he played in Taiwan. He actually got released, I think, from his Taiwanese team. He played in Mexico. He played in indie ball. He played in several minor league organizations. And finally, he set a deadline that if he was not signed by someone by June 9th, he was going to retire. That's so specific. It was extremely specific. He chose June 9th because he was going to go with his family to Hawaii and he booked flights and a hotel that would be leaving on June 16th. And the last day he could cancel the trip without paying a penalty was June 9th. <laughs> so if he had not gotten an offer by June 9th, he was going to pitch one more time for Cleburne in the American Association in Gary, Indiana. And then he was going to call it a career. And on that very day, the Cincinnati Reds called and said, come pitch for us. So he got back to the big leagues. The Reds pitching staff was just like ruined in the end of the year because injuries, COVID, they were just extremely shorthanded. They ended up using, I think, 65 players on the season, which was, uh, I think, second only to the Angels, maybe. So they were just going through pitchers like the Angels used a lot. The A's used a lot. The Reds were actually a winning team, which is not typical of a team that's using a ton of players like that. But they were. And Michael Marriott was part of that parade. But he made it back, which was great and heartwarming. And David Bell, Red's manager, said at some point in the next couple of days, I want to have him take me through the whole journey. And I hope they did that immediately because the very next day, Michael Marriott was designated for assignment. <laughs> so 
that's the end of that story, which is a little less heartwarming. But he did at least make it back, which was nice. And, and hopefully he was happy that he stuck it out and didn't go to Hawaii, though I'm sure Hawaii would have been nice too. He had a 6.49 ERA in 51 and a third innings at AAA, which yes. really tells you what the Reds were looking at in exactly. September. Yeah, yeah. And he pitched pretty well, though, in his one big league game, which uh, could be his last. He pitched two and two thirds, gave up one run. So that one went okay, if you don't look at the FIP, at least. So that was a happy ending, at least until the next day, when it was uh, sort of a sad ending to the happy story. Elsewhere in Ohio, Cleveland Guardian story. This was submitted by Nick, and it's about Josh Naylor's late-game heroics, his late-game go-ahead homers. I don't think I was aware of quite the extent of this. Of course, Sarah Langs was all over the fun facts here. Naylor, he hit a go-ahead home run in the eighth inning in three consecutive games and was the first player, at least in the expansion era, to do that, to hit a go-ahead homer in the eighth or later in three straight games. And Sarah tweeted that he now has eight go-ahead homers in the eighth inning or later since the start of 2021, which is two more than anyone else in the majors in that span. So if I were to ask you, who do you think has the most go-ahead homers in the eighth inning or later over the past few seasons, probably you wouldn't say Josh Naylor, probably wouldn't be your first guess, but that would be the correct guess. Josh Naylor just uh, turns into Babe Ruth in the eighth inning or later when the Guardians really need a go-ahead home run. Didn't he like headbutt Terry Francona or smash his head on a helmet or something after a go-ahead late home run a couple of years ago? Maybe maybe he has learned something since then. Hang on, I'm gonna see yeah, if I can. look it up. That's probably a story we missed in whatever year that was. So yes, June 29th, <laughs> 2022. Josh Naylor painfully headbutts Terry Francona after walk off win. <laughs> <laughs> on purpose. Uh, unclear. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, one way or another, that's a that's a good segue actually into our Rockies story here which is uh, almost an almost painful head-related collision. So I'll, uh, I'll paste this into our little window here for you to look at, too, in case you missed this. But Noah Davis, who is pitching for the Rockies and I think was making his Major League debut, his first start, there was a, a line drive, a comebacker back through the box, and he... Ooh. Yeah, he, he turned his back to it like he spun around, which I guess understandable impulse, but could have been bad if he'd been hit in the back of the head. But he ducked just under it and it hit his hair, maybe. He has long curly hair, but also his hat and it whisked his hat off his head, kind of like Charlie Brown style, where like Charlie Brown will get all his uh, clothes and his hat knocked off by a line drive. It was like that. He escaped getting hit in his head, which was good. But I don't know that I've ever seen that exact thing happen. The hair does seem to be a contributing factor to yeah. protecting his head. It's providing some level of <laughs> insulation between the hat and his head. Because you're, if you're trying to picture this and you're like, but if it hit his hat, wouldn't it hit his head? And he's got a thick mop of curly hair. Yeah, it might not have hit his hat at all if he hadn't had so much hair. It might have just been above his airspace. But as it was, it hit the cap. Glad he's okay. And secondly, lastly, 
Rockies related, we got a message from Corey, who is a long-suffering Rockies fan, who says, Meg asked on an episode a couple months ago whether any Rockies fans listened to the podcast, and if they did, whether it made them sad when y'all remark about how bad they are. I will say the Rockies being the butt of most jokes on every baseball show I listen to does make me sad, but that's not your fault. It's the teams for having earned that derision. Okay. But... Corey said, there's some reason for hope, maybe optimism. Many things about the Colorado Rockies go unnoticed by the general public because, well, they're bad at most things. 2023, however, brought with it a notable change in the way the organization operates that I think is worth remarking on. They traded with other teams significantly more than they have in a long, long time. According to SpotTrack's transaction tracker from the end of the 2022 regular season through the end of the 2023 regular season, Bill Schmidt's Rockies made 15 trades. Compare that to Jeff Breidich's final three-plus years as GM, where the Rockies made a total of 12 trades. Most of these deals were relatively minor, with the exception of the Nolan Jones trade, but getting back even back-of-the-rotation prospects like Mason Albright and Jake Madden for veterans on expiring contracts is simply something the Rockies didn't do for years. Their reputation as extremely insular was earned, but under Schmidt, it appears it may be time to alter our expectations of them. If that turnaround and willingness to talk to other orgs doesn't fit the bill, there's also the opening of their performance lab. They have begun trying to catch up with the rest of the league in terms of analytics and development. In 2020, they had an R&D department of one employee, which has risen to 11, still second lowest in MLB, and they've completed construction on the aforementioned performance lab that will open in January. So they are now maybe on an island, but they are at least trading with other teams who are not on islands, and they have followed suit and opened a performance lab, which was all the rage like four years ago. So, so they, they finally got on board with the performance lab trend. I'm not sure the Rockies discover trades is a sign of optimism. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you got to take the optimism where you can get it, I guess. Also, Ben, I have to give you, I think you're, you're underrating. You, you guys did talk about that. I listened to the episode where I believe you recapped the bold predictions. Yes, that is true. I, I snidely predicted that they would not yes. make any trades. And I you snarked. were forced to acknowledge that they did. <laughs> yes. I guess I had not realized the extent of the trading that they had done, but I was aware that they had made a trade, which was which was progress, I guess. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the, the headbutt of Terry Francona was intentional. We have determined <laughs> yes. if anyone was okay. And Terry was wearing a helmet, so <laughs> he was fine. Okay. I hope he has a happy retirement and no one headbutts him intentionally or unintentionally. All right. Detroit Tigers submitted by Isaac and Chris. The first thing is that Matt Manning broke the same foot twice this season, both times on comebackers. Unlike Noah Davis, he did not avoid the line drives back. He got hit and and broke bones in the same foot, like at the beginning of the season and toward the end of the season, which is uh, extremely snake-bitten, line-drive-bitten. And in between, he pitched okay. The peripherals weren't so strong, but, but, you know, he pitched pretty well, all things considered, given the fact that he was between broken feet. I would say he had a pretty successful season. So, you know, not the greatest Tiger season, but Manning and Torkelson and Green and others made some strides. Scooble was good. So the core was kind of coming together, despite the fact that everyone was trying to break Matt Manning's foot and multiple times successfully. So that sucks. I have no thoughts about that. I don't, <laughs> foot injuries foot injuries are so unpleasant to think about. <laughs> yeah. And the second submission was the existence of Tyler Holton, 
who we probably didn't talk about on the podcast, but he existed and he was an important contributor to the Tigers bullpen. And the interesting thing about Tyler Holton was that the Tigers claimed him off waivers from the Diamondbacks who had placed him on waivers because they signed Andrew Chafin away from the Tigers. Chafin had been with the Tigers and was good in 2022. So the Diamondbacks signed him away from the Tigers. They had to make room. So they cut Tyler Holton adrift. The Tigers said, "Okay, we'll take Tyler Holton. And then Tyler Holton outpitched Andrew Chafin. So it worked out really well, I guess, for the Tigers and for Tyler Holton, who tied for the Major League lead in relief innings pitched. I think he and... Whoever else he tied with, I think it was Jake Bird, also of the Rockies, was uh, an opener at times. But that's kind of nice. Like that wasn't quite a trade, but in effect, it was a trade and it worked out quite well for the Tigers. This could get even worse for the Diamondbacks and better for the Tigers. I mean, we have no indication they're going to do this, but Mike Exisa at CBS Sports just wrote about Holton as a pitcher who could become a starter, basically, a reliever who could become a starter a la Zach Littell last year or Michael Lorenzen. Uh, And so maybe he could take Eduardo Rodriguez's spot and poke the Diamondbacks in the eye again. Yeah. Okay. Now we are up to the Houston Astros. This was submitted by Michael. This is something that I was aware of, though I don't know that we brought it up, but the Dusty Baker, Chaz McCormick playing time pudding saga Does that ring a bell? Uh, There was something about him being overweight. Yeah. Yeah, right. So there was some controversy about how much McCormick was playing or not playing. Some Astros fans were upset that he wasn't the everyday starter, although at that point he was really the regular starter. Maybe some platoon splits issues or, or whatever. But people were wondering why he wasn't playing absolutely every day. One of the things, there was like a, a report that maybe Baker was concerned about McCormick's weight, which he denied. Michael writes in to say, amid frequent outcry and concerns about Dusty Baker's reluctance to consistently start Chaz McCormick, Chadler Rome wrote an article for The Athletic detailed how a source from within the team claimed that Dusty privately had issues with McCormick's weight. Dusty then publicly responded to the allegations with an incredibly amusing defense centered around his frequent procurement of banana pudding for Chaz McCormick. Quote, as far as his weight is concerned, if I had something against him with his weight and you can ask him, I wouldn't bring him banana pudding once a week. (laughs) I stop by, I get him banana pudding. If I was concerned about a guy's weight, I would not bring a guy banana pudding. So I guess that's a conclusive defense. The banana pudding defense could not have been concerned about his weight because if I had been, would not have brought him so much banana pudding. So Michael wants to know what our take is either on that situation or on banana pudding in general. My take is that I am very unhappy to learn at this point and only at this point that he name dropped where the pudding came from. I knew this story, but I did not know that we could have gone and gotten the pudding ourselves. I just Googled this. I was like, that's where you got the pudding? I love (laughs) banana pudding. And I spend a lot of time in Houston in service of covering baseball because the Astros (laughs) have been quite good lately. And I have a really great rotation of all-day cafes and breakfast places in Houston if you ever need them because I've spent a lot of time there over the years. But I didn't know about Houston, this is it, soul food and their banana pudding. 
think that may have been like a story we missed about the Astros in a previous season, Dusty Baker's food buying for his team. But yeah, this started sooner, but it just it flared up. It became a controversy because of McCormick's playing time. So I don't have strong feelings about banana pudding personally, but I, I love banana pudding. And I, in fact, have Magnolia Bakery here in New York has banana pudding cookies that they make, they put banana pudding in the batter and then make cookies out of it. And uh-huh. those are those are quite good, too. Okay. What? <laughs> this sounds amazing! <laughs> wow. All right. Okay. Well, that's, that's a food that we've missed, not just a story that we've missed, but we can rectify that in 2024. Kansas City Royals. Okay. This one was not submitted by anyone. It was me just realizing that this player existed. Dyron Blanco. Are you aware of Dyron Blanco, who was a, a speedster for the Royals, who stole 71 bases, not in the majors, that you probably would have known, but in the minors and the majors combined, 71 steals in 118 games and, you know, didn't have like the greatest on base percentages or anything. So I would guess that uh, as a percentage of opportunities, all levels combined, he must have been way up there. And, you know, he's uh, 30 years old. It was his first season getting regular playing time, but total speed, speed demon, Dyrone Blanco. So that's something to know about the Royals. Maybe even more noteworthy, though, and this was submitted by Robert. Now, you probably are aware of Zach Greinke's win-loss record because we don't talk that much about pitcher wins and losses anymore, but we do maybe when the pitcher goes 2-15, and 15, right? And especially when it's Zach Greinke. We like Zach Greinke. We don't want to see him lose. But one of his wins, I did not know this, he threw 44 pitches in a start and got the win in a, in a five-inning start. This was May 3rd, 2023. He threw five innings. He gave up three hits, three strikeouts, no walks, 44 pitches, and he got the win. He is the first to start a game and get a win throwing 45 or fewer pitches since Greg Maddox. You would guess, I guess, that the Maddox, the the person who authored the Maddox would also author a 43-pitch win. I don't know what, that's like a less than a half Maddox. I don't want to know what to call that. But Maddox in 2003 won a game, five-pitch start, 43 pitches, and Sid Fernandez in 1993 did it with also a five-pitch start. So I guess every 10 or 20 years, a year ending in three, someone has a start where they win a game throwing 40-some pitches, which I would not have imagined could or would happen in this era of baseball. Against the Orioles. So yeah, I, that, that had to be a pretty rare occurrence against the Orioles to have any innings go that quickly. Yeah. For him to win a game at all was a rare occurrence. <laughs> I know he's wanting to come back. I hope he comes back. I want baseball to include Zach Greinke for as long as possible. It was not just a successful season, but that was, I, I guess that's the model of how you want a Zach Greinke game to go. Just incredibly efficient, not walking anyone, not really striking out anyone, just getting fortuitous contact and good defense behind him and 44 pitch win. Who knew? Okay. The Angels already mentioned the Fletcher versus Fletcher story. The only other thing that I wanted to mention for the Angels submitted by Scott is that the Angels are now the only organization never to have lost 100 games in a season because the Rockies did, finally. These are two teams that we tend to dump on, right? But the Rockies until 2023 had not ever lost 100 games a season. Now they have. 
And that leaves the Angels as the lone team standing. I honestly didn't realize that. They haven't been abysmal, obviously, in recent seasons. We've talked so much about how they have lost despite their stars, but their stars have been good enough that they've never been truly bad. But they've, like, never really been truly bad. And the Angels go back a ways, right? They're not, like, one of the more recent expansion teams. So... That's actually pretty impressive that they have avoided being truly terrible, even as they have also avoided being good lately. This is one of those extreme facts that is going to stop being true the moment you notice it. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Uh, it could well stop being true I in 2024. This, yeah. If ever this was, there was a year to, to predict the Angels to lose 100 games, this yeah, might be it. This could be it. Okay. The other Los Angeles team, so these were submitted by Peter and Zan. So one was the the Freddy dance celebration that caught on. You know, every team has some sort of celebration. The Freddy dance happened because he was at the Dodgers Foundation Blue Diamond Gala, and he was caught on camera doing this dance where he was like mostly standing still, but waving his arms kind of like one of those like car dealership balloon guys. And that caught on. I guess it was uh, fond mockery, maybe. And so the Freddy dance became the thing that Dodgers would do. Let's say after extra base hits, people would do the Freddy dance. So that's something to know about the Dodgers. But the other thing to know about them is the hottest Dodger bracket. You may both be aware of this. It's a thing online on Twitter. It's been a thing for a few years. But McKenna Martin, a Dodgers fan, started this in 2018 just without thinking that it would turn into anything. Just put like a, a Dodgers hotness bracket on and tweeted it and people discussed it and it like blew up and it became a thing and they talked about it on MLB Network. And this year it blew up even more like it's progressively gotten more and more noteworthy every year. Dodgers broadcaster Steven Nelson filled out the hottest Dodger bracket this year and tweeted it like it's been a subject of some discussion among players and personnel with the team. And it is now done for a good cause other than time wasting on the internet, which is also a pretty good cause. But an even better cause is that after all the Trevor Bauer allegations, Martin decided to use this to drum up support for domestic violence relief and solicit donations and has raised several thousands of dollars in the past couple hottest Dodger brackets. Like this year, more than $9,000 raised by people inspired by the hottest Dodger bracket. So it has become a force for good in the world as well as a force for wasting time and uh, being thirsty about Los Angeles Dodgers. Well, this is lovely. Who, who who's, who's the hottest Dodger? Yeah, I guess. Well, yeah. The, the, the thing <laughs> is that, like, the, that is a natural question, right? But I guess there is no real winner. Like, I, I guess it's part of the spirit of the Dodger, the hottest Dodger bracket is that it's just subjective. You know, it's oh, up to you. Everyone fills out their bracket, but right. not a tournament to check it against. Right. It's it's because because who decides who the hottest Dodger is ultimately. Right. I guess. So there can there can be no ultimate winner. I guess it's like we don't want to make anyone feel bad about not being the hottest Dodger. Right. So it's it's kind of everyone. Dodgers, I'm sure they feel <laughs> fine. regardless. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everyone determines their own hottest Dodger, the hottest Dodger in their heart, I guess, is, is I the did, idea. I did look up the bracket just to see if they were seeded. 
and they don't appear to be seated. They they yeah. are they they are matched up. Right. But I'm, I'm curious if because that I actually think the whoever wins the hottest Dodger is not nearly as insulting as having to do the seating of the Dodgers. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, true. And especially with this offseason, I mean, they just added Otani and Tyler Glass now. I was going like to say. two number one seeds. Just got pretty competitive. Yeah. I think McKenna does some some seeding like without actually assigning seeds, but I, I'm reading a Dodger Blue post. When the back bracket was first created, all the names were put in a randomizer, but it led to some brutal early round matchups, including an infamous second round Corey Seager versus Kike Hernandez battle. As a result, each year since, I go through and do a cursory seed based on historical favorites and my judgment. So there's there's some human input into the actual bracket. But after that, it's, it's up to each person's uh, personal taste. Who do you think was the hottest Dodger of 2023? <sighs> and I'm just going to tell you who they were seated against. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> man, okay. Hottest Dodger. James Outman did well, I think, in Hottest Dodger brackets in my in my reading on this subject. So uh, he'd probably be pretty he high up there. He does appear to be in a in a in a top seed type spot, and he, yeah. he, his first round is against Dustin May. Oof. Uh, well, <laughs> no points for height, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, I don't know. Jason Hayward, JDM. Yeah, Jason Hayward's a good a good under the radar contender there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, fill out your own hottest Dodger brackets and and let us know. Okay, Miami Marlins. This one was the the toughest one to uh, to fill. Maybe not as many Marlins fans perhaps, but a couple submissions. One, we talked about their deadline trades at the time. They were pretty active at the deadline and I think we applauded them for trying, but also the consensus was they they kind of gave up a lot maybe in those trades. But the offensive additions worked out really well. The pitching additions, not so much. David Robertson, Ryan Weathers, Jorge Lopez, not so great. But Jake Berger and Josh Bell did great as Marlins. So they were, I think, along with John Birdie, the best hitters on the Marlins after the All-Star break. So it was Birdie, Bell, and Berger, the killer beasts of 2023. They bolstered a lineup that was not good and was actually worse after the break than it was before, but would have been a lot worse if not for those trades. Berger breaking through with them was a, a nice story. Obviously, he's been around and uh, was a big prospect and has had injuries and everything. So well done adding to that team just enough maybe for them to make the playoffs. But the main one here is a quote by Jeffrey Loria, who I mean, normally we're probably not going to be complimentary about things that Jeffrey Loria said or did, but he came out in August and he blasted Derek Jeter for the alterations that he made to Marlins Park. And I feel like we're all kind of on board with Loria here because Jeter consigned the Marlins home run sculpture to like outside the stadium, right? Which was one of the redeeming elements of that stadium. And I guess it wasn't professional and Yankee-like enough. And he banished the home run sculpture. And Loria claimed that Jeter destroyed the ballpark. He said, destroying public art was a horrible thing to do. 
We're calling the home run sculpture public art. I, I think it qualifies. And Loria talked about uh, he tried to get it back and the artist didn't want to get involved. Now it will rot outside where it is condemned to neglect and outdoor decay. And Loria also condemned Jeter doing away with the colorful tiles that they had and uh, making everything kind of bland and blue and removing the fish tanks behind home plate. All the characters, the Miami touches in Marlins Park, gone during the Jeter era. But now that the Jeter era is over, maybe maybe we can bring it back. I think this is one thing Jeffrey Lurie is right about. Yeah, I don't know if Peter Bendix, uh, the new GM there, has control of this. But, uh, you know, the Rays have a tank. They could at least get the <laughs> right. tank back, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We're halfway through. You're like, wait, how long are Effectively Wild episodes again? <laughs> what did I agree to? Sorry, we will try to go a little faster. Milwaukee Brewers. This comes from Nathan, and it concerns Caleb Bushley's debut. Are you aware of Caleb, Caleb Bushley's? Not a little bit. <laughs> okay. Me neither. I wasn't. But now I am. So uh, Caleb Bushley, just another entry in the kind of heartwarming guy made the majors after having a long road to get to that point. And Bushley came up tail end of the season, September 30th. The Brewers had already clinched the division and they were playing the Cubs and he struck out five Cubs in two and a thirds innings, got the win. So he was called up from AAA Nashville. He's a Wisconsin native who grew up going to Brewers games and rooting for the Brewers. He's from Hortonville, Wisconsin. The MLB.com story says he estimated he had around 400 family and friends on hand in the ballpark. 400 family? I don't, I don't have, have that many friends. I don't, right, let alone who would come to the ballpark. I mean, I guess they're all in the area, but 400 family and friends? Is if he you add it up, in like managing the team? Yeah, I know. <laughs> they, they could use a, uh, a local boy turned manager. <laughs> yeah, there were fewer than 40,000 fans in the park that day. So, oh, on, like, more 10%? than 1% of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I initially thought well, 10%, and I was like, no, 1%. Thank but, you, thank you for- but still, 1% of the fans of the park that day were either family or friends of Caleb Bushley. Like, if he could actually bring out that many people, they should employ him just to sell tickets. Like, you wouldn't think <laughs> Caleb Bushley would, like, oh, Caleb Bushley puts butts in the seats. But apparently, he put 400 butts in the seats. Granted, it was his first game, so maybe 400 wouldn't come to every game. But 400 can you imagine, like on short notice too? If I messaged everyone in my phone in the contacts, I don't know that I would get. I mean, four hundred people—that's just a ton of people. I, I'm going to let the two of you continue to exclaim about how you don't have that many friends because I don't have that many friends either. But I don't feel nearly as comfortable admitting. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's an abnormal number of friends. He must be just a great guy. The the town of Hortonville, Wisconsin, has a population of like three thousand people. So I guess they're all friends of Caleb Bushley. I mean, you know, pride of Hortonville, maybe. But he's a, a former 33rd round draft pick, which I'm going to miss when we stop getting debuts by like 30 something rounds guys because uh, they don't have those rounds anymore. I always love when someone in a really late round will will come up and do that. But he bounced around a lot and uh, he got to get into that game and it was heartwarming and everyone he ever knew or met was there to watch. So <laughs> that's really nice, I guess. Okay. I actually looked up this game and yeah. as it turns out, I watched this game. Oh. Uh, Caleb Bushley was not the reason I watched this game, <laughs> but this was when the Cubs were in free fall too. I mean, they just right. kept finding a way to lose 
games that would have like any one of these games would have put them in the playoffs and they lost all of them and uh, I think this was yeah he he pitched in extra innings and the Cubs loaded the bases against him but yeah wisdom struck out swinging and then Carlos Santana won the game for the Brewers the next yeah I think he gave up the lead he gave up a homer to Ian Happ and then he stayed in the game and he ultimately ended up winning so the Brewers called it the Caleb Bushley game. Where were you for the Caleb Bushley game? They tweeted. And I guess if you know Caleb Bushley, you were at the Caleb Bushley game. They were all like several seating sections behind first base, apparently, were just acquaintances and friends of, of Caleb Bushley. All right. That's the Caleb Bushley game. Next, we have the Minnesota Twins. There were a, a few submissions we got. One was the sad death of Mike Radcliffe who was the Twins' VP of player personnel and went back to the 80s with them as an area scout and was absolutely beloved. He was their scouting director. He drafted Joe Maurer. He, you know, drafted like Tory Hunter, like everyone, multiple Twins cores. His fingerprints were all over that team and he was beloved. And if you ever talk to a Twins front office person, which I have, they will just spontaneously bring up how much they love and respect the scouting acumen of Mike Radcliffe. He was in his 60s. He had cancer. He he passed away, sadly. I guess on a, a lighter, more positive note, they had a fun call-up, too. And it concerned Cody Funderburk. So the fact that Cody Funderburk exists is, is worthy of mention. But also, he had an extremely Minnesotan call-up because he was on his way to the state fair to enjoy a AAA off day. And he got the call. And he had to skip the state fair because he was needed at Target Field that night. And, of course, the Twins, you know, St. Paul, they have their AAA team just a short ride away, which is highly convenient. Most teams don't have that. So Cody Funderburk was able to change his plans and go to the game instead of the state fair. But the state fair is like a huge, huge thing in Minnesota. So he was living his best Minnesota life and then had to divert to an even better life. He got to be in the big leagues, but it was a, a well-deserved call-up and obviously a, a great name as well. And he went to school in Dallas, so I'm guessing he was familiar with state fairs already. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably so. So just taking in some of the local color. And also we got a submission that's from Paul, Chris, Joel. Someone suggested we talk about Ryan Jeffers and how good he was, uh, kind of a breakout at catcher. And, you know, Mitch Garber had been a, a previous breakout at catcher for the Twins. And Ryan Jeffers was this year. They were among the best hitting catchers in 2023 although Garver was mostly DHing, But those two actually had a, a run-in, I noted, in August, where Mitch Garver and Ryan Jeffers, twins breakout catchers, surprise catchers, were at each other's throats and uh, were upset with each other because the twins were playing the Rangers and uh, there were, you know, both benches cleared and Jeffers got hit and he reacted in a way that angered the Rangers and Garver was uh, especially vocal, Sonny Gray hit. Mitch Garver and everything was just going wrong, right? Garver didn't take his plunking kindly. And I think uh, Garver called Jeffers an idiot, which is uh, not nice. So I guess their shared history. Sorry, it was Dane Dunning, actually, who called Ryan Jeffers idiotic for his actions during that fracas. But uh, the Rangers not pleased with uh, Ryan Jeffers, but the twins were. Next one, we're up to the New York Mets. 
How could there be anything we didn't talk about with the New York Mets this year? Well, there was one thing, and that's that Francisco Lindor finally made good on his promise to buy Jeff McNeil a car for winning the 2022 batting title. During the 2022 season, Lindor had just idly said to McNeil that if he won the batting title, he would buy him a car. And then McNeil did win the batting title, but Lindor did not buy him a car. For some time, a year went by, Lindor would periodically be asked, where was the car? Put up or shut up, make good on your promise. And he said, oh, I will, but he didn't say when or how. Finally, he did. Just last month in November, he bought him a car and it was a brand new Ford Bronco. (laughs) You didn't talk about this? Did you talk about the lack of Lindor buying him a car. No, I don't think we talked about that even. This uh, entirely escaped podcast notice. Which is interesting just because I feel like it was such a top of mind topic in New York. I feel like I talked about this ad nauseum throughout the season of like, should someone just buy him the car? (laughs) I I heard from people who were convinced that this was like why they were, that the Mets were bad, that this had brought bad karma (laughs) on the Mets, that at some point Steve Steve Cohen should just step in and buy the car, like break the curse or whatever it was. Yeah. I guess that's good news for the Mets in 2024. We certainly talked about like the rat raccoon Lindor McNeil thing a couple of years ago where they had an altercation and uh, had a cover story for it and everything. But I guess they made up enough that uh, Lindor finally did deliver on the car. And that reminded some people in our Facebook group of the fact that Mike Piazza, when he set the record for most home runs by a catcher, the Mets gave him a, a Chevy SSR, and people were wondering what happened to the Piazza SSR. It was this like aggressively yellow, sporty car. And according to a, a forum post that was turned up by our listeners, someone claimed that it was on sale because he lost it in a bet. Cannot confirm or refute that that's the case, but it's possible that he lost it in a game of Sabak like Lando lost the Millennium Falcon, although it looks more like an Abu Starfighter. Anyway, just in case you were wondering what may have happened to Mike Piazza's SSR. You know, Lindor didn't give McNeil a Porsche or anything like Otani did with Joe Kelly. You know, a Ford Bronco is maybe not quite as exciting, but maybe it's more useful. Maybe it's more practical. I wonder, though, whether McNeil... He didn't have a good season this year. So I wonder whether it's weird for him to get the prize for the batting title in a season when he was not hitting for a high average. He batted 270 this year, which is quite low by Jeff McNeil standards. And yet he's being rewarded for his 326 average the previous season. Probably strange for him. I wonder if there was like a side bet where Lindor told him like, okay, I'm not going to give you the car yet, but I'll give you a really nice car if you do it again. And it was like, nope, sorry, you get a Ford. (laughs) Right, just a Ford Bronco. All right, for the Yankees, so it's Andrew and Eli. Now, this, uh, you probably were aware of the disastrous Carlos Rodon last start for the Yankees, right? I mean, his whole season was disastrous, but his last start in particular, zero innings pitched. He did not get an out. He faced eight batters through 35 pitches, which was almost as many as Zach Greinke threw in that win. But Carlos Rodon did not get a win. He gave up six hits, two walks, one homer, eight earned runs. And that was actually not the worst start of the season if you go by 
game score because you know if you give up more hits and runs it counts against you right and so if you have a really short start even if it's a truly terrible start you won't rack up as awful a game score so his game score was like four but there were people who had negative game scores however it was the worst zero innings pitched game score ever. And, you know, there have been hundreds of them over the years. This was the worst start ever where the pitcher did not get an out. So that was one accomplishment by Carlos Rodon. And then we got an email from Eli, Patreon supporter, who said, inspired by that start, that reminded him of the last Yankee to give up eight runs without getting an out who was Bob Kamire, who gave up eight runs against Cleveland on September 18th, 1979. He had no other appearances that season, so he had an infinite ERA. And Eli wanted to know, is that the most batters faced with an infinite ERA in a season? And I can answer, yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Eight batters faced is the record for an infinite ERA season. The runner-up is seven. Next one, we're up to the Oakland A's. We talked about them a lot this year, not for positive reasons, usually. Couple suggestions. One was from Brandon. Actually, all of these were from Brandon. A couple Estuary Ruiz related stories. So we all know he uh, set the rookie record for stolen bases. He sold 67 bases. He also had a, an extreme runners in scoring position split. He batted 365 with runners in scoring position and 214 with the bases empty. Also, he's not very good at defense. You'd think he would be because he's very fast, 97th percentile sprint speed, but he had negative OAA and like negative 17 defensive runs saved, which would have made him one of the worst fielders. And Brandon said, kind of weird to see someone who's so fast and yet also seemingly so bad at defense, kind of like a a Lou Brock skill set where you're really fast, but maybe you just don't get good reads or or take good routes. So that's something to know about Estee. Ruiz. I think he was actually an infielder before in mm. the minors, so I think he's still relatively new to the outfield, if okay. that helps at all. Yeah, that's a mitigating circumstance. We're about to get to another infield-outfield conversion. But Brandon also noted, are you aware of the season that Zach Geloff had for the Oakland A's? I feel like this did not get a lot of attention. It certainly did not get a lot of attention from us. Zach Geloff was really, really good. Rookie second baseman for the A's. He was called up mid-season, and after that date, he was 13th among position players in Fangraph's war. So he was like almost a top 10 player from July 14th was his first game of the season. It was like Mookie, Acuna, Freeman, Olsen, Julio, Semyon, Riley, Bobby Witt Jr., William Contreras, Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, J.P. Crawford, and Zach Geloff who hit 267, 337, 504, maybe a little bit of batted ball luck involved there, but he was not a top 100 prospect anywhere before the start of the season. He was fifth on the Fangraphs A's list, and it said maybe he has a shot to be an average second baseman someday. And he was one of the best players in baseball in 300 plate appearances after his call-up, which was maybe lost in the super fun site that was the Oakland A's 2023 season. So that's a silver lining. I knew about Zach Geloff. Uh, I know he spells Zach wrong. Um, (laughs) And... But I I thought of him as a power pull guy, like a, you know, one of those sort of, honestly, a little bit of a Max Muncy type to recycle an old A that just Mm -hmm. pulls. But he actually steals a lot of bases, too. He he had 14 steals and 20 steals in the minors. So 
I underestimated his speed, apparently. I thought of him as a bulkier guy. Yeah, an old A and also a current A, because there's the other yes. Max Muncy who also the plays other for the other younger Max Muncy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, Philadelphia Phillies. Weston Wilson stayed at Nick Castellanos' house when he was called up to the Phillies. So this was submitted by Jeremy. Kind of touching. Nick Castellanos seems like a fun guy. You know, he's unbuttoning his jersey. Seems like a good hang. And he was a great hang for Weston Wilson. The two of them bonded in spring training for whatever reason. Castellanos took Weston Wilson under his wing. That's a difficult sentence to say. (laughs) Uh, He's a 29-year-old, and he was like a utility guy. He played some outfield, played some infield. And he was up with the Phillies from time to time, got into eight games. But whenever he was up in the majors, he would just be put up with his wife, I believe, at Weston Nick Cast- Wilson's wife. Yeah, Weston Wilson's wife. Weston Wilson and what- Weston Wilson's wife are both staying at the Castellanos. <laughs> I wonder what Weston Wilson's wife is, na- is named. Um, but that's a nice thing to do. I found out that Nick Castellanos' house used to be Ben Simmons's house, actually. Uh-huh. Yeah, Nick Castellanos purchased the house from Ben Simmons, and I guess it's kind of selling it short to call it a house. Like, it's it's a mansion. It's gigantic. And so I don't know whether Nick Castellanos even knew that Weston Wilson and his wife were there because just this gigantic house. In fact, I looked up how big this house is. Apparently, it's six bedrooms, 6.5 bathrooms. So, you know, Weston Wilson and his wife just taking up one of the six bedrooms. It's a 1.78 acre lot. So it's not like a lot of land or anything, but 10,500 square feet oh in this mansion. Yeah. So I guess if I had a 10,500 square foot mansion, I'd probably be like, sure, you can stay at my house too. I won't even notice that you're there. So I don't know. It's still a nice gesture. Do you know about the tattoo element? No, tell me. This is credit to Alex Coffey of the Philadelphia Inquirer who mm-hmm. reported on this. I think it was as some sort of thank you for letting me stay, or it was just a byproduct of them being in the same house. But Weston Wilson did a tattoo for Nick Castellanos. He apparently does tattoos, and he had his tattoo gun with him. Uh, According to Castellanos, we were about two bottles of wine deep, and he was like, I have my tattoo gun here. And I was like, f*** it, I'll get a tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah, that sounds like Nick Castellanos to me. Why not? <laughs> Do we know what the tattoo was? The tattoo was a J for his wife or girlfriend's initial. Oh. Okay. Weston Wilson's wife, her name, <laughs> <laughs> I have discovered, is assuming it's the same original wife, is Madison. He proposed to her at a minor league baseball game that he was playing in right after she threw the first pitch. Oh, oh. wow. That's nice. Right. We got more. Uh, Nick Castellanos' wife is named Jess. Jess has an N on her hand. This is Nick Castellanos speaking. So I just said, all right, here, Jess, you get to draw a J on my hand. And Wes tattooed it completely spontaneous. But honestly, he did a great job. And Jess is pumped about it. (laughs) So sounds like they were having a great old time together. That's really nice. Yeah, that seems only fair just to reciprocate with the initial there. It's better than getting a 4070, I would say. Anyway. I sent you, I looked at the real estate listing, some pictures of the Castellanos, former Simmons mansion. Look at this room. This is, (gasps) (laughs) 
It's the biggest couch I've ever seen. It's it's almost like a 360 couch. Like the entire room is a couch almost with a giant screen. It's like a theater, but it has an is enormous fish tank? aquarium fish tank also in this room. Yeah, the fish tank is really what jumped out to me. The couch yeah. looks large, but yeah. sure, because the room is large. The tank in, like, this is clearly a room dedicated to to TV watching, movie watching. It's a theater right. with an aquarium. Yeah, you'd think the aquarium would, like, be loud, right? Like the burbling and the gurgling while you're trying to watch something, right? Anyway, it's a big enough house to accommodate all of Caleb Bushley's 400 friends, probably. So why not one Weston Wilson? Okay, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Submission from Guy. Now, some people mentioned the incredible comeback that the Pirates had. They came back from 9 nothing, which was a, a first for them in franchise history. This was in September against the Reds, speaking of the Reds' late-season pitching staff. But that, I think, I will put to the side and just celebrate the breakout, the second breakout, the post-hype breakout of Brian Hayes who I feel like for years we'd been like, if he could just hit a little, he would be amazing because he's such an incredible fielder. I, I guess he got our hopes up that first fractional rookie season when he came up and was amazing with both the bat and the glove, like in fewer than 100 plate appearances. He had a 201 OPS and we're like, okay, this is the best player in baseball, I guess. And then he was a well below average hitter the next couple seasons. He missed some time and everything. But this year he started off really slow and he made some mechanical tweaks, like he started the season with a leg kick, and then he traded in the leg kick for a toe tap, and then he went back to the leg kick. And whatever it was, it really worked. After June, he had a 127 WRC+. plus. He was a, a top 40 position player in that span, despite missing basically all of July with back inflammation, which probably hurt his hitting too. And despite that, he was a really good hitter, in addition to being third in DRS, fourth in outs above average, so still an elite glove but actually was hitting, really lowered his ground ball rate, doubled his launch angle or more than that on average. So it was all just like, can he elevate? Can he stop hitting the ball into the ground? And he did, especially toward the end of the season. And he was great. He was the Pirates' most valuable player. But if he could sustain that for all of next season, he could be an MVP candidate. So I, I look forward to seeing if he can. Yeah, he's very fun when he is, uh, well, I still... I'm choosing to remember his 2020, the the crazy good 95 plate appearances as what Cabrian Hayes is. So right. uh, maybe he'll be that and the Pirates will be good again. Yeah. When you're anchored to that, it's uh, it's hard to live up to, to that. But but he did quite well this year. So that's an encouraging sign while O'Neill Cruz was out the whole year. All right. San Diego Padres, I alluded a moment ago to an infield outfield conversion. Obviously, this was news. This was known. But I, I think we undersold it and under discussed it. Just how good Fernando Tatis Jr. was in the outfield after barely playing any outfield before. That can be a tricky conversion. Like Jazz Chisholm, for instance, he converted and the defensive metrics were mixed on him. He, I think he got better. He had some some notable gaffes out there with the glove, but the metrics, uh, he was negative nine DRS plus four OAA. Fernando Tatis led the majors by a lot in defensive runs saved, 29 runs above average. 
OAA had him at plus 11, which is still good. And again, super inexperienced. Like I'll quote from Sarah Langs here. He had played just 24 career games in the outfield entering 2023, the fourth fewest entering a season at a gold glove winning position for a non-rookie. Okay, a couple of qualifiers there, (laughs) excluding pitchers and considering outfield as one position per Elias. The others, 2022 Ramon Urias at third base, 1999 Pokey Reese at second base, and 2023 Gabriel Moreno at catcher, who was also excellent. But man, he bounced back, like not fully with the bat, although he was a big expected weighted on base underperformer. So maybe he got jobbed a bit with the batted ball quality. But if the offense comes back even more than it did, and he's that good as an outfielder, then, well, he is once again one of the best players in baseball, just at a different position. It makes you feel better about the defensive spectrum and like the positional adjustment in war because it's like, oh, yeah, we put the shortstop at another position and he was actually amazing. It feels like it doesn't usually work that way. Right. He's probably better off in the outfield because he is so good there. And at shortstop, he was, you know, rangy and talented, but also pretty error prone and inconsistent. So, yeah, this might be the better home for him. All right. Seattle Mariners. We certainly talked a lot about the Seattle Mariners this year because one of our hosts is a Mariners fan. However, I don't think we talked about how annoying Jose Caballero is. <laughs> annoying to opposing pitchers, not to Mariners fans who quite liked him. But Jose Caballero, I, I mentioned that hit-by-pitch rate leaderboard earlier that Miguel Amaya was atop of. Jose Caballero was second in hit-by-pitch percentage, which might be because he is such a pest at the plate, specifically when it comes to pitch clock manipulation. So he was the best or at least the the try hardest at just trying to piss pitchers off by manipulating the pitch clock. He annoyed Martin Maldonado. He annoyed Garrett Cole. He annoyed Lucas Giolito. He had the seventh slowest between pitch pace of any batter, minimum 250 plate appearances. But that doesn't convey his techniques, which like... He would take timeouts and he would stretch them out. There was one tweet with a video I saw where it was like 80 plus seconds between pitches, which, you know, prior to 2023, you might not have batted an eye at that. But now it is wild to still see that. And what he does, he has this technique. So Maldonado was quoted as saying, I told him to get the expletive back in the box. He didn't say expletive, but I don't know which expletive he used. Much to Scott Service's delight, Caballero didn't back down from the veteran catcher whose nickname name is Machete. Cabby is really savvy on how to use the clock, Mariners manager service said. He doesn't like the pitcher out there holding the ball on him. He likes to slow it down. Per the rule, you've got to have your head up at eight seconds or earlier, but Cabby doesn't usually lift his head up right away. He'll be in the box, but his head is down until he gets to about 10 or nine on the clock, which is perfectly legal. It's different. The Astros didn't like it. Whatever. I love it. Since Cabby showed up here, he's played with some edge. He plays the game his way. It's perfectly legal. It's just different. And I had no problem with it. Others did. But I love the way he's playing right now. So he did this repeatedly. He'd be in the box like ready to hit, but not quite ready because his head was not facing the pitcher yet. So he'd kind of like deke the pitcher basically by not fully facing him until the last possible second, which just pissed everyone off, even though he wasn't actually breaking any rules. I really like this. Early on, who was... See, this is going to be better if I could have remembered what it was. Zach, you might actually know what I'm talking about. There was a back and forth of pitchers and batters in like a single game or a single at bat even. 
sort of deking each other with the clock, and MLB kind of closed some loopholes. Maybe Max Scherzer was involved. I'm pretty sure Scherzer oh, yeah. was involved, but I don't yeah. remember who the batter was. At the time, we talked about that, and I, I was like, I'm in favor of players figuring out a way to use it to their advantage. If you want to install the clock so the games take less time and so the action is more regular, that makes tons of sense. That's a fan issue. I mm-hmm. like the players then turning around and taking this rule and using it to their own unique advantage and finding a way to kind of play with it. I want MLB did not close any loopholes is sort of my point. Like, you you made these rules. Let them find the loopholes. Sure. Mm-hmm. This was actually in spring training. Max Scherzer did a long hold, and no way we would have remembered who it was. Nationals catcher Riley Adams. Okay, I feel better. Took his, <laughs> took his timeout, so he couldn't take any more timeouts. Scherzer just never stopped being set from his long hold. He just stayed there. Yeah. And then as soon as Adams got back in the box again, he he threw it. Mm-hmm. So they closed that loophole. Well, this is just gamesmanship. It's clocksmanship. If you can get away with it, clearly he was getting in players' heads, so it made some sense. All right. San Francisco Giants. That was uh, by Andrew M. That submission, by the way. The Giants, we had a bunch of Giants fans write in to be like apologetic about how boring the Giants were. (laughs) I didn't say it, but they were like... (laughs) Not a good place to be. I know. I mean, maybe they're still smarting from the recent uh, comments of Yamamoto being like, yeah, I might have signed with the Giants if the Dodgers didn't exist. (laughs) Just twisting the knife even further as it's already protruding from the backs of Giants fans. But a lot of them were like, yeah, we were mediocre and it just like wasn't that fun. You know, like nothing was that notable. People were like, talk about Patrick Bailey's defense. It was good. I think we did talk about it, in fact, but people were coming up empty. However, we did get a couple submissions. So Jen Alfred Payton wrote in, there was one weird play against the Dodgers where there was a a dropped pop-up. Casey Schmidt dropped a pop-up and deflected it to the pitcher, Jacob Junis, who threw the ball into the outfield. And then it was like a cavalcade of errors. The play lasted 32 seconds, which is long for a baseball play to last. I feel like Sam Miller wrote, or we talked about like, how long can a baseball play last? What's the longest baseball play? This could be a contender because it went on and on and on. The ball was everywhere. There were multiple errors on a infield pop-up somehow. No one scored. There was a runner on second, but Mookie, the batter, didn't really run out of the box. And then Michael Bush, who was on second, didn't score. And they both ended up at third base, which was bad. And John Miller was on the call. So that was the one saving grace. He said, what is happening? Man, that was just embarrassing. He compared it to a Greek tragedy. So it actually worked out okay for the Giants. Maybe it's more embarrassing for the Dodgers that they didn't take advantage of that. But I think the best submission we got... Apparently, the Giants or some Giants were obsessed with the card game Pusoy Dos, which is sometimes known as Filipino poker. This somehow swept the Giants clubhouse. And apparently it got to the point where reportedly it was like affecting the clubhouse dynamic. And there was an Andrew Baggerly athletic report from late September. And I'll just uh, quote here. Outfielder Mike Yastrzemski, second baseman Tyro Estrada, and infielder Wilmer Flores are among those who sought to refocus a clubhouse that has included too many ho-hum reactions to losing, along with a near zealotry to Pusoy, a Filipino card game that Jock Peterson and some other Giants players appear to find more compelling than studying the Knights' opposing starting pitcher. 
I was not expecting Jock Peterson to be the player singled out as obsessed with this. I know. It's uh, it's like, yeah, we talked about Jock and, and Tommy Pham and the slap and everything the year before. And now maybe it's a Tommy Pham redemption arc. Like Pham was like on the Mets clubhouse case for not being intense enough or not working hard enough or preparing enough. And now you have Jack Peterson reportedly playing Filipino poker instead of studying opposing pitchers. I will say like Jack wasn't that bad. He was much better in 2022. His ex-woba was unchanged this year. So was it the Pusoy dos or was it just worse batted ball luck? I don't know. I guess it could be both. But, but whenever a team doesn't do well, you tend to hear like, oh, the clubhouse was too laid back or they were playing music after losses. Apparently, the Giants were playing Bob Marley songs after they lost. You know, they weren't somber enough. It's like the chicken and beer Red Sox sort of thing, except in this case, it's it's playing a card game. I don't know. You, you never know whether it's kind of like a post hoc. They didn't do well. And therefore, it's because the club, because if the Giants were winning, it'd be like, hey, they're so laid back. They're just having fun. They're playing poker in there, you know, and they're lost. And so it's the opposite. And it's hard to untangle the, the cause and effect there. Yeah, I think the Giants fans mostly have pinned this down because I thought the Gabe Kapler firing was weird, too, because it's sort of, yeah, the players just aren't that good or interesting. So it's hard to have a good team that way. Yeah. It's a variation of Big Two, a popular type of shedding card game. The object of the game is to be the first to discard one's hand by playing them to the table. If one cannot be first to play all cards, then the aim is to have as few cards as possible. We also got a submission. Apparently, the Giants were blowing kisses to each other. That was their celebration after hits, which I think would be of great interest to Meg because she is very much in favor of PDA among players, and she approves of players smooching only if they want to. She always says, but when they want to, when we see public displays of affection and kisses, she is uh, very tickled by that. And the Giants were doing that. And in fact, after someone forgot to blow a kiss, Brandon Crawford got on their case and reminded them to blow the kiss. So that was nice. I don't know if Giants fans were blowing kisses to that team, but the players were blowing kisses to each other. I don't know. That sounds compulsory. Compulsory <laughs> kissing is crossing a line. That's true. Yeah. That, at that point, it's not really if they want to. It's yeah. if Brendan Crawford ordered me to. <laughs> but it was just an air kiss. Okay. The St. Louis Cardinals. This is from Riley. They had another player who was gone for a long time and came back, in their case, Uniel Caracuto, who had been absent from the majors since 2016. He got into four games for the 2016 Rays and just came back and got into nine games for the Cardinals in his age 30 season this past year. So he had been bouncing around for a long time, made it back. Always nice to see. And also Adam Wainwright just fully became a singer-songwriter and musician, transitioned into his post-playing career career or multiple careers because he's been a broadcaster too. He's also really embraced the like country singer thing too. And uh, he has an album coming out next year. So that's something to look forward to in 2024. We cannot look forward to Adam Wainwright's pitching. Not that Cardinals fans were really looking forward to Adam Wainwright's pitching, particularly in 2023, but he gave a, a post-game concert at Bush Stadium where he played three of his three uh, original compositions, which you can hear on his website if you're interested right now, adamwainwrightmusic.com. So he's he's really embracing this. He does have 
professional songwriting partners who co-wrote the 17 songs that he recorded at Muscle Shoals, 14 or 15 of which will be on this album. But he has lots of friends like in Nashville in the country music scene, and apparently they told him he was pretty good. I don't know whether they were humoring him or whether they genuinely believed it, but he has he has taken that as a vote of confidence, and he is uh, now just a performing and composing musician. Do you think Randy Johnson will show up to photograph his concerts? <laughs> Or maybe Joe West could accompany yeah, him. Yeah, Joe West could accompany I don't know if they were friendly or if they had uh, <laughs> yeah. battles over the years. But. Yeah, well, I wish him well in his musical career. Tampa Bay Rays, this is a, a quick one, but Pete Fairbanks and his black eye. Jason Stark just did his rundown of the weirdest injuries in baseball of 2023. And number one on the list was one that I don't think we talked about. And it was Pete Fairbanks, who had a more serious baseball injury. He had hip inflammation and he came back after returning from the IL stint for that with a big, bright black eye. And when everyone wondered, why do you have a big, bright black eye? He explained, quote, I pulled the pool basketball hoop down onto my face after dunking on a three-year-old to, <laughs> to kind of teach him an early lesson in life that when you're in the paint, you cannot be caught unawares underneath the rim. I guess he was uh, hoisted on his own rim here because he was caught unawares by the fact that the hoop crashed down onto his face. I assume this was his three-year-old and not oh. some someone else's three-year-old that he happened to be dunking on to teach a life lesson. But Just a three-year-old at the local YMCA. <laughs> Fairbanks was... Yeah, just playing a pickup game in kindergarten or pre-nursery or whatever, teaching them some, some hard knocks. Yeah, so I associate Pete Fairbanks with like looking scared and, you know, blinking a lot and looking nervous out there. But... In this case, he looked like he'd been in a big fight and got the worst of it, but it was just in fact that he was playing pool basketball with a three-year-old. That might have been why he did it. Too many people, too many people <laughs> associating him with looking afraid, and he was yeah. like, "Oh, I'm going to change your <laughs> sense of me." Uh -huh. yep. If anyone's unfamiliar with Pete Fairbanks, too, just to visualize this, he is six foot six. He yes. is huge. <laughs> uh, so this would, would have been really weird looking. Probably. Yeah. Probably also weird for the three-year-olds to get dunked on by a six foot seven man. OK, Texas Rangers, they won the World Series. We did talk about that. I know you talked about that on your last bandwagon episode as well. R.I.P. Couple submissions here. One is Nathaniel Lowe's defense. I feel like we, we talk a lot about pitchers and hitters who make themselves over and do something different mechanically and transform their careers. We don't talk about defensive makeovers as much, maybe because there just aren't as many. Maybe it's harder to do that. But our pal Mike Petriello had a good thread on this back in June about how Lowe had improved from negative 11 outs above average to, at that point, plus five. I guess he ended up at plus two, so there was some slight regression after that. Apparently, he knew that he was bad and that he really had to work on this. And he decided to work with Francisco Lindor, who, in addition to giving Jeff McNeil a Ford Bronco, also helped Nathaniel Lowe improve his defense. And they had a group of players they worked out together in Florida. And Francisco Lindor, he knows how to play defense. And he imparted a lot of that to Nathaniel Lowe. So, you know, it's, it's hard to be maybe terrible or great as a first baseman, or it doesn't stand out as much. But in his case, he, he went from really bad to really good. 
I wonder if he sent Francisco Lindor a Ford Bronco <laughs> for the help. And that is how Jeff McNeil got a car. <laughs> right. He just re-gifted it to Jeff McNeil. <laughs> uh, Nathaniel Lowe also has a very cute dog, by the way. That's all I can add. I was trying to think. <laughs> I was racking my brains. You were talking. I was like, I wrote so much about the Rangers. What would be an interesting addition to what you were just <laughs> saying? Um, and he has a very cute puppy named Mondo. Oh, well, that's good to know. So that was a nice little turnaround. And then we mentioned the being open about mental health issues and legendary Rangers broadcaster, Eric Nadell, he did the same thing. He missed the first 109 games of the season while taking some time to get treatment for anxiety and insomnia and depression. And then he came back and thanked everyone for their support and and fell right back into the rhythm and got to call a World Series win for the first time in franchise history, which was a pretty storybook ending to that season and also his season in particular. So happy for him. Now we are down to our last couple teams here and the Toronto Blue Jays story. So this also falls into the kind of harrowing but heartwarming category. And that is reliever Jay Jackson, who was pitching in the Jays bullpen throughout the season even though his son was born extremely premature, born in July at 25 weeks, under 25 weeks, almost four months premature, weighed one pound and six ounces and was just in the NICU for, for months and months and months and going through all sorts of health struggles. And Jackson was traveling back and forth to be with his son and fiance and was doing that with that while also trying to be a major league pitcher. So that just sounds extremely difficult. I mean, Max Stassi went through something similar, right, where his child was born extremely premature, similarly premature, and he just took the season off or most of the season off to just focus on that. I'm sure it's difficult however you try to handle that, but Jay Jackson was doing that while trying to balance baseball. The story had a, a happy ending. Their son, Jr. Got to come home for Christmas, seemingly out of the woods. So 166 days in the NICU and Jay Jackson was pitching for a lot of that time. So you never really know what challenges are going on off the field. I mean, I guess maybe we we knew that that was going on, but he also pitched well. Like, he, you know, when he was able to be out there, he was doing well. So kudos to him and glad JR is doing well as well. I think he's a free agent now, but he should, uh, he, you know, Jay should stay with the, the Jays. I mean, hopefully he had a positive experience uh, with mm -hmm. them and hopefully they were helpful in that entire ordeal. But yeah, I, I like Jay on the Jays. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. And last but not least, we come to the Washington Nationals. Now, there are a couple submissions here. Laura wrote in for some. One was Jacob Young's meteoric rise from high A to the majors. We have a segment on the show where we do a meet a major leaguer and we talk about guys who made the majors who might not have uh, come to our attention otherwise, the Caleb Bushleys and the, the Thunderbirks of the world. This one, more of a, a prospect and a young guy who just catapulted up from high A to the majors. And it was not such a successful season, maybe for Nationals prospects as a whole. You know, there were some highly touted guys who went backward or didn't go forward, at least. But Jacob Young was a bright spot. And C.J. Abrams, specifically what C.J. Abrams did on the base paths. So 
In his first 77 games of the season, he stole nine bases, nine on 11 attempts, okay? In his last 74 games, he stole 38 bases on 40 attempts. Including a franchise record 25 in a row without being caught. So again, nine stolen bases, two caught stealings in his first 77 games. His last 74 games, 38 steals and two caught stealings. His OBP went up from 285 to 312 in those spans, so maybe he was just on base more, but he just had to decide to turn on the afterburner at that point, and he did so successfully, in fact, that from the day when he really decided to start doing that, again, kind of arbitrary endpoints a little bit here, on July 6th, he stole two bases, and that was sort of the start of it. From July 6th on, C.J. Abrams led the major leagues in stolen bases. He stole 38 bags, which was six more than Acuna over that span, eight more than Corbin Carroll. Pretty impressive. Like, if he keeps that up, he could be going for 70 or 80 next season. Did not realize that that he had become such a speed demon in the second half of the year. They were pretty good in the second half, right? Uh, I wouldn't yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> he was definitely better. I mean, he, he had a really nice season compared to what, you know, I was a little worried about him after the initial exposure to the major leagues. He didn't look like he was fully up to speed, but yeah. this, this year he looked he looked good. They, they did okay. They were close yeah, to 500. They were, they were close, close to yeah. 500. They were yeah. 486 in the second half. Yeah, it's a big improvement. They were six, They were 607 in August. They were 17 yeah. and 11 in August. Okay. Well, we've done it. This was probably more podcasting than you bargained for, but hopefully you saved up some podcasting time from not being able to do the bandwagon lately. So. Yeah, we had pent-up podcast energy. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you for filling in. During a week when people mostly aren't working, on short notice, really happy to have you, and I I hope that we will be able to hear you and read you somewhere other than Effectively Wild very soon. Thank you for having us, and have a happy new year, everyone. Yes, thank you so much. We were so available because we do not have 400 friends who would attend a baseball (laughs) game, even if it was our debut. (laughs) Or anything else. (laughs) Woo! Okay, if you want any more information on anything we talked about today, check the show notes where instead of listing hundreds of links, I will just link to the spreadsheet, which is stuffed to the gills with all my notes and links and credits to the people who nominated these stories. Thanks to all of you. 2023 complete. We talked about all of the baseball. Didn't miss a thing. And that will do it for today and for this week and for this year. Whether you listen to one episode this year or 156, that's how many there were. We appreciate it and we hope you'll be back for more in 2024. And if you'd like to help us keep making these podcasts, you can go to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad free and get themselves access to some perks. James Smith, Che Orion, Bobby, Brian Riley, and Matt Idigson. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the effectively wild discord group for patrons only monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, prioritized email answers, discounts on merch and ad free fangrass memberships and so much more patreon.com slash effectively wild if you are a patreon supporter you can message us through the patreon site if not you can contact us via email at podcast at fangrass.com send us your questions and comments send us an intro theme if you're musically inclined we're always interested
interested in adding to the rotation. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Shane McKeon has returned, so thanks to him for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful New Year's, and we will talk to you in 2024. I'm just a fan.